We're reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation." But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it is November Fall is in the air, and Thanksgiving is upon us, and this being the first Sunday of the month, we are once again uh, continuing our sermon series on the subject of the church. But since it's November, uh, and this is a month we traditionally celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving, uh, we'll be spending the next several weeks looking at the role of thankfulness in the life of of Christians. And this is an important topic for us as believers. Thanksgiving is one of the primary distinctions between Christianity and paganism or between Christianity and every other religion in the world. In pagan religions, the gods that are worshipped must be appeased by means of sacrifice. You give them a portion of what you have in order to appease the God, to satisfy them, and to turn away their wrath and ensure that they act favorably towards you. Christianity, however, is different. In Christianity, the one true God has provided the lamb for himself. He has provided the sacrifice to settle the demands of his perfect justice while also showing mercy to multitudes. He justifies those who trust in the sacrifice that he has provided, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. And so Christians are, should be inherently thankful 
people. We don't appease God by giving him things. He has given us all things in Christ Jesus. He has satisfied the demands of his holy justice, which we could not do. This is the complete opposite of paganism and of other religions, which has men sending gifts to their gods in hope that the gods will be satisfied and then not destroy you in their wrath. But as Christians, we know that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That's James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down out of heaven from God to us. And for this reason, we should be thankful. Now, all through the scripture, we see this language of thanksgiving and thankfulness. Believers in the old covenant and uh, in, in the Mosaic law, they, they gave thanks to God for his goodness to them by bringing sacrifices to the temple. They're called thanksgiving sacrifices. Now, those sacrifices, interestingly, were not given to God and consumed by God. They were brought to the temple and offered as an act of worship in thankfulness for God's blessing. And then the sacrifice itself, the grain or the meat, was consumed by the priest and by the worshiper. Leviticus 7.15 says, And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. So this thanksgiving was an act of worship to God, acknowledging his goodness to you and sharing his goodness to you with the priests in the temple. And you both got to partake of it and enjoy God's goodness. Now, the Psalms are replete with thanksgiving. Throughout the Psalms, we consistently see prayers of thankfulness to God. And throughout the Scriptures, we see people offering thankfulness to God in their prayers. From David in the Psalms, to Jonah, to Jesus, to the saints and martyrs gathered around the throne in Revelation, thanksgiving is a central part of Christian worship. A helpful way to think about the Christian life is to use uh, this rubric of head, heart, and hands. Head, heart, and hands. What, what are we to know and believe in our minds with our, with our head? What are we to love with our affections, with our heart? And what are we to do with our hands? These are three questions that we'll be asking about this subject of thanksgiving this month. But we're going to work backwards through them, uh, beginning this morning with our hands. What are we to do because we are a thankful people? How are we to act in thanksgiving towards God? And our text this morning addresses this, and I'm calling it the benevolence of thanksgiving. The entire thing is predicated on the knowledge of James 1.17, the verse that I read a moment ago, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And because every good and every perfect thing comes from God to us, we should be a thankful people. Because 
every good thing, material good things and spiritually good things, come to us from God. We can't claim credit for any of the good things in our lives. We must give thankfulness to God for all good things. So how are we to act on that? How are we to behave ourselves in ways that show our gratitude and our thankfulness to God? Well, I want to argue this morning that the primary way that we demonstrate our thankfulness to God with our hands is by loving other Christians who are in need. We know that we are to love one another. The scriptures tell us that we are to care for one another, to do good to the household of God, which is the church universal. One example of this that we have in the pages of the New Testament is the collection that the Apostle Paul was gathering from the churches to take back to the saints in Judea. And so for some background on this, uh, we would need to turn to Acts chapter 11. Uh, The church in Jerusalem and throughout Judea is being persecuted. Saul, whose Greek name uh, was Paul, was a central figure in that persecution, right? He was a Pharisee. He's persecuting the church. But even after he is converted to Christianity, the persecution continues. And so in Acts chapter 11, we see that on top of the persecution, these saints in Judea now have added to that persecution a famine. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the church in Judea is suffering both persecution and now famine is added to that. And so Paul travels around the Mediterranean world planting and then revisiting churches and he encourages them to participate in this this koinonia, this participation, this fellowship with other believers by collecting a monetary offering that would be sent back to Judea to aid these Christians who are suffering persecution and famine. So that's the background for our text this morning. And in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 9, it says, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. So the, the offering that he is collecting to take back to Judea, that's what he means by the ministering to the saints. And they know what he's talking about. It's unnecessary for him to explain this to them as superfluous. They know about this collection. He has already told them about it. They have already committed to contribute to the collection. Well, verse 12 is our key verse this morning, and, and we're going to look at it, and then at the end we'll gather some thoughts from the context that we read in verses 1 through 15 as we seek to apply this. But let's look at verse 12. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Now the first thing I want us to notice here is that this work of benevolence is being done. This administration of the work, the administration of this service, 
This is a work of benevolence. And there are two interesting aspects of this work to be seen right there in the first phrase, the administration of this service. Now, the word administration here is a word that we're very familiar with. It's the Greek word diokonia. It's where we get our word deacon. This is deacon work. It's usually translated as service or ministry. In Acts chapter 6, which we've looked at before, where the first deacons were ordained, there it says that the widows were neglected in the daily ministration. That's the same word. Later, the same word is used there in Acts 6 to refer to the apostles' ministry of the word. Again, the same word. They're, they're, dio, they're, they're deaconing of the word. It's the administration of this relief fund that is being gathered. The work of ministering to the needs in the saints is a diaconal work. It's, it's the work of the deacons. But it's translated here as administration because they are administering it. They're collecting it, transporting it, distributing it. This, this money that is going to relieve the needs of the, the suffering church. And it involves a lot of people. There are a number of people who are giving to this collection from numerous churches. And it's not just limited to a few of the wealthier members of the congregations either. Paul says in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. There are people who are giving to this fund in multiple churches around the Mediterranean world. In chapter 8, he says that the churches of Macedonia gave out of their deep poverty. So it's not just big gifts from wealthy people in the church. It's whatever everyone can give, whether it's a little or a lot. Everyone is participating together in this work of benevolence. In addition to the giving, there are those who are collecting and transporting the funds as representatives of the various churches. You can see that if you were to read all of chapter 8. And then there are those in Jerusalem who will distribute to those who are in need. And then, of course, there are those who will receive the aid that is being given. So you can see that this, this work of the church involves the whole church. Multiple congregations giving, apostles, representatives of the church, deacons, elders, all through the known world. It's a work of the church as a whole, not the work of a select few. And this is important because, as we'll see in a few moments, the results of this work spread to the whole church, not just a few. But the thing to note now is that this work of benevolence is a work of the whole church. Next, note that it says that this administration, the administration of this service. Now, if diokonia is the word translated as administration, we might wonder, well, what, what is the word service here? Because that's how the, the, the diaconate words are often translated, is as service. So it, it, deaconing or serving of the service. What is the service? Well, here we have another Greek word that you will likely recognize. Liturgia. This is where we get our English word liturgy. This is the deaconing of the liturgy. Now that might seem odd to us at first glance. When we think of liturgy, we think about what we do and the order that we do it here in the church on Sunday morning. Here's our liturgy. 
in the bulletin, our order of worship. Every church has a liturgy. Some of them are very formal. Some of them are less formal. Some churches that have a very formal and and ancient traditional liturgy, we might actually call them liturgical churches, but every church has a liturgy, an order of worship. So what does it mean in our text when it talks about the deaconing of the liturgy? Well, think of it this way. We use our liturgy in our worship service, right? This is what we call this. We call it a worship service. The Puritans used to call it a service of worship. The idea is that what we are doing as a church on Sunday morning is we are worshiping God by serving Him in the ways that He has instructed us to do so. The worship service isn't even about us. It's about God. That's why everything that we do here is centered around God and around His Word. So the liturgy is simply the the acts of worship that we regularly perform in service to God. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they actually used this word, this Greek word, liturgia, to describe the work of the priests and the Levites in the temple in the Old Testament. So in our context, what is being said here in 2 Corinthians is that the benevolence offering that is being collected is an act of thankful worship. It's an act of worship. It's part of the liturgy, and it should be practiced regularly by the whole church. Our thanksgiving to God is put into action as believers serve and care for one another in the church. Now consider the results of this work, this liturgy of thanksgiving. There are two results that we see in the text. The first result is that the needs of the saints are met. It says in verse 12, For the administration of the service not only supplies the needs of the saints. This liturgy, this worshipful act of giving thankfully in benevolence supplies the needs of the saints. Paul explains in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians that this had actually happened for him. He says in chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, I preached the gospel of God to you, that is to the Corinthians, free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied So the idea is that as a missionary, when Paul came to Corinth to proclaim the gospel and to plant a church, he didn't expect the people that he was evangelizing in that moment and the church that was newly born from that work to financially support him. He expected established churches in other regions to support that missionary work. They made up the difference in what he lacked. Now, That's what he is now encouraging the church in Corinth to do for the saints in Judea, to make up the lack. He's not saying that the believers in Judea can just sit back and live off what is given to them by other Christians. They're in a tough spot. They're being persecuted. There's a famine. It's difficult for them to make a living, to to feed their families. So other believers who are not in that situation can contribute They can help supply what income these believers in Judea can't make for themselves. 
Now let's pause and think about that for a moment. They are supplying the needs of who? The saints. The saints. That is, they are supplying the needs of God's people, of those people in the world who have been set aside, dedicated to God. This, the Greek word that's translated saints here is the same word that is translated as holy everywhere in your New Testament that you read the words Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. It's the same word. It means that something is set apart as sacred. It is not like other things. It's pure. It's hallowed. It is dedicated to God. Christians are the holy ones. They are God's holy ones set apart as his sacred people. So think about that in the context of benevolent giving. Giving to supply the needs of the saints means you are giving to supply the needs of God's sacred people. Those who are so closely associated with Christ that they are called his body. Now what Paul, who is writing this, when, when he was, before he was saved, when he was known as Saul, his Jewish name, persecuting the church, he leaves Jerusalem and he heads to Damascus to persecute the believers who are in Damascus. And while he's on the road traveling there, Christ appears to him, the risen Christ. And Christ appears in a, a blinding light. And he says to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In other words, persecuting the church, persecuting believers, Christians, the holy ones of God, the body of Christ, was all the same as if he was persecuting Jesus himself. Likewise, helping the saints is all the same as if you were helping Jesus himself. Think about that. That is an incredible privilege. We, when we can give to help other believers who are in need, is as if we are helping Christ. That's astonishing. When you give your money, your time, or in any other ways to supply the needs of other believers, you are serving God through worshipful thanksgiving, but you're supplying the needs of those who are so closely united to Christ that it's if you were feeding him. This is what Christ meant in the Gospels when, when he says, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The referent here from my brethren is not those who he's speaking to. It's 
to Christians who are in need, the least of his brethren, those who are suffering, those who are in need. When you act benevolently towards those believers, you are doing so to Christ himself. They are sons and daughters of God, united to Christ as his body. What an incredible privilege to minister to Christ in his need. But our benevolent thanksgiving not only supplies the needs of the saints, it is doing far more than that. Paul says in verse 12, the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Our benevolent giving supplies the needs of the saints, but it also abounds through many thanksgivings to God. And again, the words of Scripture are worth pondering here. Our acts of benevolence to the body of Christ, liturgical acts of worship in service to God, abound through or by means of many thanksgivings to God. The word abounding here is interesting. It's used in verse 8 as well where he writes and says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. The idea here is that you would have everything you need and then some. You have extra. You can share. You're sufficiently supplied for all your needs. You have no lack. In fact, you have an abundance. Two other uses of this word in the New Testament would help us grasp what's really being said here. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his listeners that if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have a righteousness that abounds. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds, there's our word, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The idea is, look, look at the most righteous people you can imagine. Your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. It needs to go far beyond theirs. It needs to abound. Where do we get that kind of righteousness? Christ. It's His righteousness that abounds to us. Another use of this word is in Matthew 14 when Jesus is feeding the multitude. You remember this? He, he multiplies the bread and the, lo- the fish and the loaves. He feeds the multitude. And it says in verse 20, So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. There's our, same, our word again, remained, abounded. There was such an abundance that they had 12 baskets full of leftovers. Jesus made more food than they needed. Why? He knew how many people were there. He could have made exactly the amount of food they needed. He made 12 baskets full of extras in order to make a point about the abundant grace of God. So what our text is saying is the same idea, that when Christians give worshipfully and thankfully in benevolence to supply the needs of other members of the body, You're not only supplying their need, but it's it's abounding. It's going beyond. There's something extra happening. It supplies the the physical, material need, but it goes beyond that and supplies a spiritual need that maybe we didn't even recognize was needed. It is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. 
We've already said that thanksgiving is an act of worship. So what happens is when we give benevolently, we not only supply physical needs, but it abounds into the spiritual realm, supplying a cause for worship throughout the church. Thanksgiving from many Christians, it stirs up the hearts of the saints to worship, which is always a good thing. Those who supply the need by their giving are engaging in an act of worship as they do so. Those who collect the gift and distribute it are thankful that their their ministry has been enabled by the giving of others. And so they can go about their ministerial work with thanksgiving, worshipfully ministering. Those who receive the gift are thankful for the supply that has come to them through the body of Christ And they're moved to worship God, thankfully. John Gill commented and said, Many precious souls are sent hereby to the throne of grace to give thanks to God. Many precious souls, his holy ones, his sacred saints, are moved to to go before the throne of God and worship him, thankfully, because of our giving not only supplies the needs of the saints when you give, you're not only worshiping yourself when you give, but you are supplying other believers with a cause to worship. This is an abundance. Physical needs are being met, which is good, but the souls of saints are are being moved and stirred up to worship God with thankfulness. And that results in prayers of thanksgiving, hearts of thanksgiving, thankful worship of our good and gracious Heavenly Father who supplies all our needs through the means of His church. Now what's particularly interesting about the thanksgiving that is stirred up here is, again, the Greek word that is used. It's one that we're familiar with. It's the Greek word, eucharista. It's where we get our English word, eucharist which is a term that is used to refer to the Lord's Supper. It's called this because when Christ instituted the meal, what did he do? He prayed over the bread and the wine, giving thanks. When we partake of the supper together, we pray over the elements, thanking God for the sacrifice of Christ that we are remembering as we eat the bread and drink the juice. It is a liturgical thanksgiving It's an act of thankful worship. And when we partake, we call it communion because we are declaring our union with Christ and with one another as his body. It's a part of our fellowship, not only with Christ, but with each other. It's a liturgical act of thankful worship and fellowship with the saints. The Eucharist or communion, both good terms to use to describe the fellowship that we have with one another and with Christ and his death, and therefore our justification before God, our thanksgiving to him for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Benevolent giving, likewise, is an act of thankful worship in which we participate together as a whole church, ministering to one another and thereby to Christ himself. And it abounds to God through the thanksgiving of many. So let's look at some practical points of application from this text. 
First, we can see from the text that benevolent giving should be planned, prepared, and organized. We're told in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each member, each household, husband and wife together, should prayerfully consider their giving to the cause of benevolence. Purpose in your own heart how much you will give. Plan it ahead of time. Budget for it. If you wait until there is an immediate need, you're going to feel the weight of that need and some obligation. And you may give grudgingly, not certain in your mind that you could afford to give this much or you haven't prepared to give this amount. You feel pressured in the moment. And that kind of giving, Paul says, does not please the Lord. Plan ahead, pray about it, budget for it, so that when you give, you can do so cheerfully. The giving that is prepared ahead of time, planned by the members, should be prepared by the church. Look at verses 3 through 5. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not a grudging obligation. The church should be prepared ahead of time so that when a need arises, We're not scrambling trying to meet it. This is why we don't wait until someone in our body has a need and then take up a benevolence offering. Instead, we collect benevolence offerings beforehand so that we're prepared and the deacons can administer that act of service when the need arises. These first Sundays when we celebrate communion together are a great time to make benevolence, giving to the benevolence fund, a part of your liturgy of worship. Each member should plan beforehand how they will give, and the church should prepare the fund beforehand so it's ready to meet the needs when they arise. And it must be organized. You can see from the larger context of uh, this text that the collection that the Apostle Paul took up was organized. It was accountable. Each church organized their contributions, and they sent representatives with Paul to the other churches. Look back at chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. And we have sent with him, that is with Titus, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Paul sent Titus to Corinth to collect and organize the giving, and with him is sent a representative of other churches. There was another brother sent along as well, and in verse 23, Paul says that both of these men were messengers of the churches. They're representatives from the churches. There's organization and accountability along the way. And when the collection goes to Jerusalem, it would be given, we were told in Acts 11, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. We know from Acts 6 that the elders in Jerusalem had deacons assisting them with the ministry, distributing to those who were in need so that the apostles and the elders could continue to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
what we can gather from all of this and put together is that there was a process in place to make sure that the money was accounted for, carefully handled, wisely used, and properly distributed to those who needed it. And, and that's our goal in the distribution of benevolence here as well. We have a process in place for the collection, the counting, the handling, and the distribution of these gifts so that we can do it wisely, do it in a way that reflects what we see in the Scriptures. So that, that's the first point of application from our text. Prayerfully plan ahead to give to the Benevolence Fund. And when you do, you simply write the word benevolence on the outside of the envelope and put it in the offering box. And then the process kicks into place to, to follow what we see laid out in the Scriptures. The second point of application is that this sort of giving should be joyful. In verse 5, the apostle says it should be a matter of generosity, not as a grudging obligation. And in verse 7, he says we should plan how to give beforehand, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So when you give to the Benevolence Fund, you shouldn't do so because you feel obligated or because you feel pressured to supply a particular need, but because you joyfully want to give of your abundance to Christ to supply the needs of His body. The word cheerful in verse 7 is the Greek word hilaros. It's where we get our word hilarious. It means to, to give with such exuberant joy that you're almost laughing as you give. It's to give to the needs of God's people with praise to God for the abundance that He has given. To give with generosity, with joyful thanksgiving and exuberant joy. You have an opportunity to serve Christ in His need. And this should be a cause for joy and cheerfulness when we have an opportunity to help other believers. So how do we become cheerful givers then? Well, there are two clues in the text. First, by prayerfully planning ahead. Uh, Paul tells us this clearly present, prevents us from giving in a grudging way and enables us to give cheerfully. Secondly, we become a cheerful giver when we become a thankful worshiper. And that's the third point of our application. When we meditate on God's goodness to us in Christ, His generous grace and mercy, His provision for our physical needs, we become thankful worshipers. William Arthur Ward wrote in his book, Fountains of Faith, Gratitude can transform common days into thanksgivings, turn routine jobs into joy, and change ordinary opportunities into blessings. Thankfulness and gratitude towards God turns our act of giving into an act of joyful and thankful worship. And this creates a blessing for the whole church. As we'll see over the course of the next couple of weeks, Thanksgiving is central to Christian worship. But our giving supplies the needs of the saints when it flows from our own thanksgiving, and then it provides opportunities for thankfulness in others. It increases the spirituality of the church as a whole. It multiplies and improves our worship. Look at verse 11. 
while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Paul and the others who are administering the benevolence fund are moved to thankful worship by the giving of the churches. Now look at verse 13. While through the proof of this ministry, they, that is those who receive the giving, glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. So those who receive the gift of benevolence and have their needs met are moved to thankful worship. Now, this is important for us to remember from several angles. But think about this. If you are on the receiving end of benevolence from other Christians, whether that's them bringing you a meal in a time of need or the church providing some funds that you need because you lost a job or something or whether you are hurt in some way and and people step up to take care of things, you're receiving, having needs met by other Christians. The fact that you're in need may not even be about you. It may be that God is using that to stir up others to worship thankfully. It may be that he's moving you to learn to pray thankfully. Oftentimes we think when we're in need, other people have to help us out. Why am I in this situation? Well, it, it may be that God is working in you. It may be that he's working in the people who are helping you. That this abounds to the whole church. When we give with a heart of thanksgiving, it, it abounds with thanksgiving to God through other believers. The leadership of the church, namely the deacons, are thankful for a church that gives cheerfully and loves each other in this way. It enables them to fulfill their ministry to the needs of the body with joy. The elders are thankful. When needs are met, through the church caring for one another in whatever fashion, it encourages us as elders to know that our preaching and teaching is not in vain, that the church body is growing in Christian maturity and Christ-like love for one another, that the body is being cared for. And those who are in need and have their needs met are moved to thankful worship, thanking God for the good gift of the church. Now look at verse 14. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. If you're on the receiving end of thankful giving from others in the church, here's what your response ought to be. You should pray for those who gave. You should love them. This is what it means when it says they long for you. It means they were moved with affection and desired to be with them. This is how Paul uses this, this word, this language throughout his letters. He says in Romans 1, 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. To the church in Philippi, he writes, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. To the Thessalonians, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. And to Timothy, he says, Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you 
being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. This should be our reaction as well, praying for the body, longing and eagerly desiring to be together with other saints to jointly worship our God and King. But notice that he says they prayed and longed for those who gave because of the exceeding grace of God in you. The glory and praise is directed to God, not to other people. They gave because God had blessed them with abundance, and he had worked his exceeding grace in their hearts to stir them up to give and to do so joyfully to meet the needs of the body. And so Paul concludes in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Not the gift of a meal, no, the gift of thanksgiving in the body of Christ that leads us to meet one another's needs. The gift is not just a supply of physical needs, but the increase of koinonia, fellowship, and spiritual worship in the church to the praise of God's glorious grace. God has richly provided for our needs, physical and spiritual. He has provided for our spiritual needs through the sacrifice of Christ who gave himself for us that he might bring us to God as sons and daughters, redeemed from the curse of the law, justified by his blood, made new by our union with him, and made part of his body that we might love one another and care for one another. And he provides for our physical needs through that union that we have as a church. And that provision of physical needs leads to more thankful worship for the entire church. Our thanksgiving to God is put into action as believers serve and care for one another in the church as though we were serving Christ because when we serve his body, we are serving Christ. It's an act of thankful and joyful worship that abounds throughout the entire church. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray.